Scott Blankenship Blank. And this is the Triloquy Spooktacular. <laughs> okay, you're, I, I, don't, I don't have an evil laugh. I, that's, that's the best I can do. Well, you better think one up because we're about to do a, a scary laugh contest okay. here in just a moment. Okay. So, well, well, are, are there different sorts of laughs or something? Well, think about every scary movie that you've seen over the course of your life. Okay. And depending on the era that you're in, yeah, there's a lot of different laughs, okay? okay? So let's think all the way back to like the 40s, the so 30s and 40s like school. like the original mummy, the original Dracula, all those um those have a, a certain old school laugh, you know, the stereotypical uh, scary, I'm going to eat you up. Is that laugh. the more ha 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 ha? <laughs> yeah, try 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 one like that. Okay. Okay. More ha 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 ha. That's pretty good. That's all right. Okay, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna do my stretching here. All right. <laughs> oh, that's pretty spooky. I would hate to hear that in the middle of the night. <laughs> All right, well, anyway, this is a Triloquy Spooktacular. Uh, happy Halloween, everybody. We're going to uh, talk about the relationship between the spookiest time of the year and uh, classical music. But uh, but first of all, you know, how, how have you usually uh, celebrated Halloween, at least in your heyday? Surely you used to, you know, do some fun things on Halloween. Well, I was such a wuss. Oh, what do you I mean? I was scared of everything. I mean... Uh, I, I couldn't go to I couldn't go to scary movies because I'd have nightmares or I'd stay mm. up all night. And there's one uh, the first scary movie I saw in a theater. I snuck in to see when a stranger calls. Okay. Have you ever heard of this? I think I've heard of that. Yeah, Carol Kane, like real early uh, in her career, and she is uh, in most of the movie is in this house where she's babysitting, and she keeps getting harassing phone calls. Okay. And then uh, and and. When he calls up and she picks up, he always says the same thing. Have you checked the children? Oh, my goodness. Right. And so she's freaking out. And then finally, the, the phone rings one more time. She's screaming. She wants it to stop. You know, she's all about to go completely mental. She picks up the phone and she's yelling, stop it, stop it. And the guy says, this is Sergeant Johnson. We've traced the call. It's coming from inside the house. Oh, oh excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> and then she's got to run. Yeah, so that's, um, that messed me up. And like movies, I couldn't even watch The Shining. Oh, you know, no, that's one of my favorites. I yeah. had to, I had to, I didn't see that until I was into my 20s. Really? Yeah. And then, we within, needed to be fair. Within <laughs> 30 minutes, I had every light in the house on. Really? You know, oh, it messed me up. Absolutely. You know, when you talk about, uh, you know, the phone ringing in scary movies, of course, what I think of is Scream. Mm. And mm -hmm. what was shocking to me about that movie was that, you know, 
they actually killed Drew Barrymore in the first five minutes of it or whatever. For me, that is what was so shocking. And then do you remember Scream 2, yeah. the opening of that, where Halle Berry gets killed in, in front of a crowd? That's always been one of my biggest fears, you know, getting being killed um, with, with people watching, but they don't realize it's happening. If you remember Interview with the Vampire, yeah. a woman dies on stage, you know, and, and, and they don't think that sort of thing is happening. Um the theater group that I'm a co-founder of, we used to do vignette shows through Halloween. And I watched a rehearsal once where this guy uses a straight razor to slit a woman's throat. Mm. And it was so well done that I got up and started walking toward the stage like he actually cut her. Oh, my goodness. And you I were going to be the hero. But no, I was, thinking, I was thinking like, oh, my God, this went terribly wrong. Sure. And no, it was just a little, you know, he had a, there was a, a, a thing of fake blood in the handle. It was designed for that. And just as he drew it across her throat, then it, it but dripped it down. Real. Oh, man. Do you remember I, those actors' names? Yeah. Alicia McGar and Robert Baker. Shout, shout out, out to y'all. To, shout out to both of you. Yeah. What about Halloween costumes? Do you have any like legendary Halloween costumes that you're still proud of to this day? To this day. <laughs> to this day. My brother made a, um, this massive purple alien head out of a kit Mm -hmm. and he let me borrow it he let me wear it to school and i won scariest oh nice uh, the scariest costume in grade school that year my costumes were never really scary but um and uh and and maybe this will be the photo for uh, this opus of triloquy but you know obviously i've dabbled with drag for many for many halloweens (laughs) um I think my best costume, you know, back in the days when I was a, a, a part of a modeling agency and I was like for real, for real working out and not eating, you know, my body was really banging. Mm-hmm. I went as Adam one year oh. and it was it was nice. I got I, leaf, I got huh? I, I, I took a um, I took a boxer a brief or you know like a string bikini brief and and I actually made the costume I, I cut out lots of um leaves with felt and just pasted them all over so it, mm. it, it looked like I had on like a leaf bikini um I've gone as Jesus Christ a few years folks always love that um yeah but I, I guess I'm not a uh, so much on the Halloween celebrations anymore I always feel like I have to work for Halloween I yeah, this year I, I always keep the front light off too you, know? oh, you don't give out candy to no. the little cheerins no, they can go somewhere else. Mm. There's plenty of other places. Well, you know, when we talk about uh, Halloween and classical music, you know, there are the th- there are several you know big hits, mm-hmm. and and probably the most iconic is uh, the the music from the movie Psycho. And of course, uh, you know, everyone thinks about the screech you know theme with 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 the knife. But the music itself and the suite is uh, really beautiful music that I think everyone should uh, revisit. I can't remember what was going on here last Halloween. I, I wonder if someone had the Psycho Suite by, uh, I think I think it's Bernard Herrmann, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I, 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 I'm surely that made it on a playlist somewhere. Yeah, and uh, Spellbound Concerto. Yeah, I, I've never seen that movie, by the way. Maybe I should watch Psycho. Um you mentioned Pierre Gint Suites, though. I mean, okay, so... Yeah, the, so the final movement of Pierre Gint Suite number one in the Hall of the Mountain King, the... Bum, 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 right. Dun, 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 you know. Have you...
Have you seen the movie Troll Hunter? Uh-uh. Yeah, go check out Troll Hunter. Because, that has some great music. Uh, no, it's a, it's it's not like that. It's it's actually these students that get hooked up with a actual troll hunter. In it's a Swedish film, and they go after various trolls like the Ringle Finch and the Tosser Lad and the biggest, the Mountain King. Oh, I see. Yeah, and then of course there's the story of the Elf King, uh, that that uh worked by Franz Schubert, and I think I brought it up when we were talking about Jesse Norman uh, a few opuses back. You know, the story of a father and um, son riding home on horseback, and the and the son is like, look, there's these ghosts, there's these spirits that are after us, and the mm. dad is like, oh, it's fine, whatever, and then you know the dad doesn't believe him until one of the spirits actually hurts the kid, I think scratches his arm or something. Mm. And the last line of of the leader is, uh, I can't remember the German, but, you know, the father comes home in the warmth of the house uh, swaddling his son who is dead, you know, and then you get the... You you get the uh, final two notes of that. So yeah, lots of really scary little corners of classical music, huh? For my for me though, the the iconic one is the funeral march of a marionette. For for Halloween, yeah. Okay, because I guess I think more about Alfred Hitch, Alfred Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock yeah. presents, yeah. And mm-hmm. that was that was an event on the weekends to stay up late and watch Alfred Hitchcock. That was a treat. Then, of course, also uh, the March to the Scaffold from Symphony Fantastique, our, our, our favorite, uh, you know, Hector Berlioz, our favorite drug-using composer who got high gonna, and wrote music. I was going to say, isn't, <laughs> isn't opium featured pretty heavily in this piece? Yeah, he, and it wasn't, he wasn't just high, he was tripping. <laughs> <laughs> And if you have ever tried to play the last, the witches uh, dance, like that right. last part, it's trill. Uh, but, but literally, you know, it, it sounds like this. Yeah, I'm glad I don't have to play that tonight or whatever. And what about Dance Macabre? Oh, yeah, the Camille Sassons. You know, no. there's something romantic about the Dance Macabre to me, though. You know, being being in a graveyard and these and these skeletons come up and they're playing violins and they're dancing, you could kind of be swept away by the by the undead, you yeah. know? I'll 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 love you for unever. I'll unlove you forever. Yeah. Um, how, I'm, I'm, I wonder how you programmed uh, for Halloween at KVNO, like what kind of music you put on. Well, I was only programming my own music for about half of it, and then they mm-hmm. realized that uh, it was too much for me to both be on the air and program with only four hours a day, so they gave it to somebody else. Oh, I see. So, yeah, um, I I tried to... Uh, strike more of an atmosphere rather than to rely on all the hits. I mean, obviously those were there, 
but I really wanted to create more of an aesthetic yeah, yeah. Uh, overall. So to, to, to paint sort of, um, um, just to give you the, the, the feel of, uh, a spooky graveyard or the sense of, uh, someone in your basement or something yeah. like that. I know when I would program for uh, Halloween down at WUOT, I would, all, you know, I, I do the scary stuff, but I also played on the idea of costumes. So I love on Halloween, any any day, but uh, especially on Halloween, to air the uh, Masquerade Waltz by mm. Kachaturian. Mm-hmm. Um, it just has this sort of dark Halloween ball feel to it. But then also, you know, playing on the idea of uh, costumes. You know, Garrett loves a good cowboy on uh, on Halloween. So, mm. uh, so uh, hoedown would a uh, hoedown would make it in there every now and again. <laughs> why, why are you rolling your eyes? Hoedown is a great piece of music. Shout out to Aaron Copeland. Wow, did you guys hear that? He <laughs> just gave Copeland a shout out. Okay, well, it is Halloween, so things are weird. So on this opus of Triloquy on the Spooktacular, um, Scott has actually uh, gone to his writing desk, and uh, he's written a couple really scary stories that we're going to hear from today. And these two stories are actually tied to um, some very true stories from the scarier bits of of classical music. Um, You want to talk about this first one? It's called Make It Perfect. So where did that title come from for you? Well, uh, it was a catchphrase. So um, both of these stories were built off of, as you remember, we were talking about two-sentence horror stories. Yeah. You can find it on Reddit or wherever on, on, the, inter, on the interwebs, how um, uh, the two-sentence horror stories were things like, she snuggled in close and said, I'm cold, and I woke holding the dress that she was buried in. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that makes you think, you know, you can... You, it's not all spelled out to you, and you can fill in the corners yourself. So um, for Make It Perfect, I was thinking about Ravel's Concerto for the Left Hand yeah. and thinking about, well, what what would it—they they have phantom limb pains, people who have uh, amputations sure. done. And one of those short stories, the two-sentence horror stories that I read, talked about— um, a guy having phantom limb pains and then he feels somebody holding his hand. Oh my goodness. Holding the hand of the one that's gone. Mm. And so um, I started to go in that direction and then it took its own turn. It sort of took its own life. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, Ravel. So Monsieur Maurice Ravel, you know, a French composer, um, was around in the early 20th century, and um, this guy, one of his uh, homies named Paul Wittgenstein, uh, lost his right arm in World War II. It was it was blown off. He he had to get it chopped off. But he was this brilliant pianist, mm-hmm. and um, you know he thought his life and his career was over until Ravel wrote him a whole concerto just for the left hand. And now, if my memory is serving me correctly. Um, Mr. Wittgenstein actually didn't love the concerto because it's actually kind of jazzy. You know, Ravel was into all that black music, mm-hmm. and and you can really uh, uh, hear that uh, th- throughout the work. Um, but 
what you know my favorite thing about this piece of music and one of the most iconic things about it is that it starts with a contrabassoon solo and there aren't many contrabassoon solos in the repertoire but this concerto uh, begins with one and it sounds a little something like this I've actually never had the pleasure of playing that contrabassoon solo, but uh, later on in the piece, there is a principal bassoon solo that's really jazzy, really uh, syncopated that um, I always love playing. I'll, I'll tell you the very first time um, I had the opportunity uh, to play it, I was living in Los Angeles playing with the American Youth Symphony, and they flew in this uh, left-handed pianist from, um, let's just say Sweden, some, somewhere over uh, in, in Europe. And first of all, he came to the rehearsal playing the concerto with both of his hands because he couldn't play it with just one hand and it sounded so horrible that the maestro canceled the concerto and we ended up playing the Mendelssohn violin concerto instead and uh, and the maestro uh, just played the solo part from the stage so the very first time I almost got to play it, um, but but it's it since uh, come back up for me. A really incredible uh, piece of music, especially when you consider that the solo pianist is using uh, just one hand. Yeah. And, and I can only imagine how, you know, Paul Wittgenstein felt, um, you know, with you, you're talking about this phantom limb uh, syndrome. Surely he would sit at the piano and just feel like his right hand could, touch the keys yeah. but, and maybe sometimes he felt like they were I got to do the play-by-play -play for uh, Igor Levitt's uh, recital last year that the Schubert Club did mm -hmm. and he opened up with uh, Bach Chacon oh, for the left hand all in the left hand I sat there on the edge of my seat wondering, you know, he would sometimes bring the right hand up like he was going to touch it, and I'm going, oh, oh, mm -hmm. oh no, he's not. That was, a, that was amazing to watch him make that sound with just one hand. Yeah, shout blown, out to him. Yeah. Blown away. And shout out to Bach for writing it, I suppose. Yeah. And, oh, we, and speaking of Bach, we didn't talk about one of the main, uh, oh. the Toccata and Fugue in D minor. Da -de -da. That was my first CD. That was really? the, that was the first CD I bought. Oh wow. And the guy behind the counter didn't know what I was talking about, and I had to sing it like that to him. And he goes, oh, yeah, I think we might have that over here. And you got, like, the organ version. I did. Okay. I did, yeah. I'll, I'll admit to you, I kind of like it played on piano a little better. Mm. It, it sounds a little spookier to me. But. I like the st the Stokowski transcription for orchestra. Oh, yeah, I've played that many, many, many. That's yeah. hard, and that's a hard piece to play, actually. I, I don't. I, I can't play all those notes, especially the end. Why does it—what's <laughs> well, hard about it? Because think about, you know, doing—you know, put— 
tick, tickling the ivories doing this is a little different than having to really play a bassoon and doing these runs mm-hmm. in that way. And then your run has to match with, you know, let's say if we're if if we're trying to replicate the uh, sound of a piano going from low to high, you know, bassoons have to perfectly pass off the line to the clarinets, mm-hmm. to the oboes, and then to the flute and piccolo or however it works, you know. So uh, a, a good challenge, you know, a, a really fun piece of music to uh, perform. But, yeah, definitely a challenge. Man, you're making me miss the stage a little bit, Scott. Well, all the world is a stage. Amen. And we are merely players. Yeah, yeah. Shout out to Nirmala on the... Uh, on on uh, an upcoming opus of Triloquy? Next yeah. uh, next next time. Yeah, we'll we'll talk a, a little bit more about that later. But you asked about where the title "Make It Perfect" came from, right? And this is an instance, kind of like in a lot of classical music, where the title came up after, right? Because uh, the woman's voice, the woman's part in this piece, that's one of her catchphrases. Um, she's encouraging. Um, I, I left it open in that, you know, this this could be a student, it could be a sibling or a parent or a lover or spouse, whatever it is. And she keeps saying, just just keep playing, make it perfect, you know, just and with all this encouragement. Mm-hmm. And so that that's why I use that as the title for this piece. Uh, Megan Oglesby is uh, taking up the voice of um, the the supporter. Yeah and I will read the part of the pianist. She always told me, make it perfect. Whenever I was practicing, right before I went on stage, going into record, that was the last thing that she said before she left. Make it perfect. I was climbing through the ranks of the music world, not fast, but steady. And I give the credit to her encouragement and support because I nearly gave up and walked away from it all more times than I can count. She used to say, You can do this. You'll be sorry if you don't. You'll be sorry if you don't. You'll be sorry if you don't. Make it perfect. 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 Last year, there was an accident. I can't tell you much because I don't remember it. All I remember is waking up in the hospital. And she was there when I opened my eyes. Oh, you're awake. He's awake. Go get the nurse. Just relax a minute, okay? What? Breathe. What happened to my arm? Breathe. I need you to be calm, okay? What? What happened to my arm? You lost it in the accident. I thought my career was over. All those years of practice for nothing. My career gone. Gone with my right arm. But she kept after me, and eventually I started to play again. 
<laughs> and I would sit there and I'd imagine the music that my right hand made. I could almost see the keys go down on the keyboard, a phantom limb playing along in perfect unison. was my private hell. Countless times I went to raise my right arm to the keyboard and nothing. And she would say, keep playing. Make it perfect. Make it perfect. It all seemed too much, you know, an accident I can't remember facing a lost career. I would have killed myself if it wasn't for her. If it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have become the best left-handed pianist in the world. Every piano piece for one hand, I mastered. And composers wrote music for me to play, and my touring schedule was full again, and I owed it all to her and all the times that she came up behind me at the piano and said, Keep playing. Make it perfect. Make it perfect. Make it perfect. Keep playing. Make it perfect. Make it perfect. Or I'll cut the other one or off. Or I'll cut the other one off. And now, now I don't play at all. That was a pretty scary story. <laughs> I might have a nightmare or two tonight. Um, there was, there. I'll be honest with you, I I did start with, um, like, she was bringing him a cup of tea every so often, and then that's when the memory lapses would happen, and he was looking down going, yeah, and I'm, all of a sudden now I'm noticing that my... My pedal foot is a prosthetic, and, you know, so she was actually, like, lopping off yeah. different parts of him throughout the course of his whole life, and he had no memory of it. I wonder what she so. saves for last. <laughs> okay, Lorena. <laughs> oh, how's that for an evil laugh? <laughs> <laughs> that was a little creepy. That was a little creepy. Uh, uh, so, so before we get into... Um, our, our second uh, story on this triloquy, uh, Spooktacular. Um, I kind of wanted to talk about some of your favorite Halloween episodes of TV shows. Do, does anything come to mind for you? Last season, I caught uh, The Haunting of Hill House. Okay. Did you watch that? No, I didn't. Oh, man. It hit on so many things that are really scary to me, like the... Um, there were jump scares. There was I hate jump scares. There was, popcorn everywhere. There was the <laughs> <laughs> there was the the creepy crawly skin sort of like yeah yeah that that aspect of it and the uh, un the um, the suspense aspect. Yeah, there were so many things. Um, uh, different people seeing the same scene from different perspectives and the way they react, yeah. you know, makes that. Uh, so The Haunting of Hill House was huge. We talked about I watched The Shining when I was in my 20s. But you're talking about TV. Well, I mean, or I guess you don't like, uh, you know, when I'm thinking about your personal fears, you don't like the idea of like mannequins and inanimate things coming to life. Have, have you ever seen that on TV or, or anywhere? I can't think of. 
I, yeah, I don't think I can think of an example off the top of my head of that. Go and look up Magic, starring Anthony Hopkins, a young Anthony Hopkins. Okay, and, we'll have to watch that together. <laughs> and I'll be over in another room. Um, or how about uh, Poltergeist? Sure. Not yeah. only does uh, is a doll moving around, it's a clown doll yeah. moving around. Uh, check, please. <laughs> I'm out. What you know, about you? Remember those... Uh, well. You know, remember those things that when I was a kid, it was called showbiz pizza. Now it's uh, Chuck E. Cheese's and those animatronic yep. things. Mm-mm. Those things just weren't right to me. <laughs> I didn't I didn't like that. As a and kid. they could just start moving at any time. Yeah. And saying, Get away. And, and their heads are so weird. No, um, everybody that knows me knows that I'm pretty afraid of snakes mm. um, to this day. <laughs> I cannot live on the first floor of an apartment building if I live in a house, I don't know what I would have to do, but the idea of waking up and there's a snake in the bed with me is just too much for me to deal with. I hate to even talk about it now because I don't want to have uh, any nightmares or anything. Um, but as far as my other, I can't think of any other big just phobias I have. I'm not really claustrophobic. Um, I'm not necessarily afraid of heights, Um you know, I'm afraid of widths. You're afraid. <laughs> right, if it's right. too wide, man, I just can't deal. Okay. You were talking about uh, snakes, wasn't that in Robert California's little Halloween speech oh, that he did Robert on the California, office? Robert California, of course. Who, by the way, is a creepy character on his own. Yeah. And done to perfection by James Spader. But do you uh, remember any parts of that speech? Well. Uh, he was incorporating the fears of everybody around the office and making sort of making it up on the spot. Yeah. And so, you know, Kevin's uh, was scared of mummies, you know, like how how could you have a mummy in a museum? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then there was uh, the, the snake wrapped around the baby's neck. Um, there was uh, Kelly. She was afraid of not being married. Okay, so there's a fear. There's a fear that's not rooted in jump scares or. I think I might have the opposite fear: getting married. (laughs) Um, Hey, Dale. (laughs) And um, losing a child. Of course, that was that was in there as well. Yeah, that that uh, you know the late great Clara Schumann had to deal with uh, um, among many other uh, women of classical music and otherwise days past. but speaking of uh, women uh, from days past, uh, our second uh, spooktacular uh, tale uh, is is loosely based around and inspired by the the story of Florence Price. So you know, um, most folks know her um, as really hitting it big in Chicago, and that's where you know uh, many of her scores were found uh, after she died and all that sort of thing. But she's from Arkansas, and I, I believe it was Little Rock. And um, she uh, and her family, you know, her dad in particular, um, you know, what was an upstanding member of the community. He, I, I believe he was a dentist or, or something, but still had to deal with, you know, the very racist, very scary reality that was living in the South in the 19, you know, tens, uh, 19 teens and, and, and 1920s. And if there's anything, you know, scary to think about is the idea of, you know, people in white robes coming out of the woods and, you know, every, every depiction of the Klan on television and in movies is just a little spooky to me. You remember the Klan scenes in uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Mm. Yeah, just 
imagining at sometimes I imagine going through the woods, maybe uh, someone convinces me for some reason to go camping and we're going through the woods and we walk up on that shoot my ass is grass at that point you know that th- would, would that not be horrifying i garrett i i couldn't imagine stumbling on that even if the clan didn't exist mm. but knowing that and if you just sort of tripped into one of those sorts of meetings as a white person not wearing a robe i would be like i i'm in I am in deep here. Yeah, sure. Um, so how about how about you talk to us about um, you know the story that you wrote inspired by you know this sort of thing? Can I are, can I ask you first? Okay. Uh, about a genuine fear, sure, that I have right now, and it also exists every time we record this podcast because we talked about what my place in it is as an older white man, mm-hmm. part of the part of the problem. Um, I, you remember I told you early on, I was like, man, if I write this, I, I can't be any of the voices. I sure. can't. I, I don't feel like I have a spot. I, what, what business do I have writing about what a black family might experience or what they might feel when someone wants to kill them because of the way that they look. Well, um, I can understand how that is very challenging and, and, and how that can kind of bring up some fear in you. Um, but you aren't uh, doing it by yourself. You know, um, I, I am here and I, I gave you a little schematic. You know, I, I, I did a, a rough draft for you. And, um, but, but again, uh, not to get too far off topic, but, you know, your skills um are just abounding when, when it when it comes to this project um all the way down to being able to write these stories because you you as, as you've already mentioned you uh, uh co-founded a, a, a theater mm-hmm. you know down in Omaha so you have that uh you have that gift you have that skill for really making words uh come to life and uh in this case sound really scary what I did for this, uh, you mentioned to me that Florence, when she left her home, she thought about a piano that they left behind that was burning. Sure, along sure. with the house. Okay, so I deviated. D- dramatic from, reenaction. I yeah. I deviated from there, and instead, we're working with a violin. Mm-hmm. And also, I think that as you listen, you will find that I tried to leave it to you. Um. Not you, Garrett, but I tried to li- leave it to the listener to sort of fill in some of the gaps. Yeah. And so I think my my goal was to try to make this, write this in a way where it didn't have to be a black, black family. Hmm. It could have been a Jewish family. Sure. It yep. could have been um, a, a family with a, a gay or lesbian member. Absolutely. Okay, so it um, basically... Uh, but I guess what I'm saying is it didn't have to hinge on white and black. Um, and I wanted to focus on um, stifling heat, both real and uh, metaphorical. And that inspired the title of this tale, which is Always Hot. What do I remember? I remember fire 
and I remember ghosts. It was always hot. My father worked outside, breaking his back under a sun that just pressed down, branding his skin all day. That was nothing when you think about the pressure cooker that we were in as free black people, one generation away from slaves. My father used to say, Everybody going to heaven, we already in hell. We sure as hell didn't feel free. Every day, he got up before the sun started baking the land. So hot there was libido sweat on his neck, just getting ready to leave to work in another man's field. He didn't dare be late, afraid of what mister would do if he was, <laughs> even though he could have whooped mister with his big callous hands. He said his hands were too big to play music, so he just sang all the time. I am a pope pilgrim of sorrow. I'm left in this wide world alone. No hope for tomorrow. I'm trying to make heaven my home. He got home from work every day dirty and sweat pouring off, then he'd disappear into the cellar. I'm trying to make heaven my home. We'd ask if we could come down, and he said, No, I'm digging. He wouldn't let us kids down there, but we'd heard him sing. I'm trying to make heaven my home. Can we come down? No, I'm digging. Can we come down? No. I'm digging. Nope, I'm digging. At the time, we didn't understand. Every night we heard him sing, and every night it got a little quieter, like a little further away. See, he knew something no one else knew. It was about to get much hotter. My father surprised me with a violin one day. I didn't even ask for one because we didn't have money to get by. Ain't no money for a violin. But who knows how long he saved or what he did to get it for me. The day he brought the violin home, he was chased by some men in a truck that thought he stole it. They called him terrible things, horrible things as they kept driving by. They drove by him right in front of our house, opened the truck door and knocked him into the ditch. I, I saw it. The men in that truck, they looked like ghosts. I thought they killed him. He said, They look like ghosts, but... Ghosts don't have red over their hearts. You see that red over their heart? And you run. You run. And you run. Run. They're men, so they're scarier and even more dangerous. I don't know how he knew that they'd be coming back, but he did. That night they came back 
dressed as ghosts, red over their hearts. I woke up to the sound of shouting and yelling, those horrible words. Out of here, boy. The walls of my room lit up like the inside of a jack-o'-lantern from the cross in the yard, on fire. Come on, we just want to talk to you. I was so scared. All I could hear was those men. Hey, hey, get out of there. And the beating of my heart. My father, he must have known that things were about to boil over, that soon we'd be joining the great northern migration. He was ready. You know how he went into the cellar every night? He was digging. A little tunnel that led to the shed out back. Bricks and rocks started breaking our windows. Then they threw torches in and laughed and hollered. Y'all don't come out, we gonna come in there after y'all. That's when my father came running in the room and picked me up. Cover your face. Cover your face. Cover your face. Cover your face. We gotta get to the cellar. He said my brothers and sisters were already on the other side. I had to crawl through that tunnel, that dark tunnel he had spent every night digging. But all I could do was cry. I didn't know why these men were out there, why they hated us so much. Then my father started to sing. I am a poor pilgrim of sorrow. I got down. I crawled on my belly. I couldn't see. That tunnel was like an oven. It was so hot and hard to breathe. I can still taste the dirt and smoke. But I heard my father singing. It was just a few minutes, but it felt like forever. I have no idea how my father got through that little tunnel. He stuck his head through and said, Where's the violin? Uh, Where's the violin? The violin. It was still in the house. He went back into the tunnel. I grabbed his legs and begged him not to go, but he'd be damned if it burned up after everything he went through to get it for me. We thought he was gone. My brothers and sisters tried to pull me away from that tunnel. But there wasn't anything that was going to take me away. I thought if he was going to die, then I was too. That's when I heard something. Scratching, shuffling. And I saw my dad's two big hands come out that tunnel. Burned and charred holding my violin. I remember fire, and I remember ghosts. And when I look down while playing my violin, I see my dad's hands stained into the wood, and I hear his voice.
I'm trying to make heaven my home. And I want to say thank you once again there for Megan Oglesby lending her voice. Yeah, shout out to her. As soon as I heard that she had a theater background, that's that's when this this, started turning. I was like, we got to collaborate. So, um, and she was really easy to work with and so accommodating and everything. So a big shout out uh, to Megan Oglesby for lending her voice there. And for you, uh, to you for being the father. Yeah, doing my best to put on my acting hat. Um, You're you're a great producer and a great coach. So um, we hope that you thought... Um, those two uh, tales were entertaining on this Triloquy spooktacular. Um, But on the next opus of Triloquy, not scary at all. If anything, touching. I remember crying a lot. Well, we did, but <laughs> well, we did those interviews with uh, Nirmala Rajasekhar, uh, a, uh, a uh, an Indian classical uh, music artist who comes to talk to us about the tradition of Indian classical music, um, what what it means culturally, what it means um, contemporarily. Uh, yeah, I, and I remember you having a great time with that one as well. Uh, an illuminating interview, and she was uh, both her and her co and her. Uh, collaborative yeah. percussionist. Yeah, but Pati. Both of them were, were just so open and ready to share, and they really gifted us with a beautiful piece of music live in the studio. Absolutely. And um, uh, incidentally, that is going to be the first instance of Triloquy TV. Yeah, so uh, be sure to uh, check out Triloquy.org for that uh, on the next opus of Triloquy. Hope you have a happy Halloween. Be safe. Be sure to check all your kids' candy because some of these people ain't right out here, Scott. Wear reflective clothing yep. and uh, make sure that you know where you're going to be in at what time. And Did, did you know, before, before we go... There is a big push, especially down south, to to uh, to quell the sale of edibles because they're afraid that people are going to give out the edibles uh, for Halloween. <laughs> Those are too expensive to give away. Period. Not that I would know. Well, let, let me not even front. Yes, I know. I've been to I've been to legal states. Um, no one's giving away the the cannabis candy. But check your kids' candy if if you have kids that are trick or treating because it's some jokesters out there. And listen next time for uh, an illuminating interview and some beautiful music with Nirmala Rajasekhar. <laughs>